All right, could you please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12. And uh, we are going to skip the end of Acts chapter 11, because it pieces together with the start of Acts chapter 13. Two big things happen in Acts chapter 12. This is right before Paul's first missionary journey, which begins in Acts chapter 13. But in Acts chapter 12, the first apostle is martyred. We've had Stephen uh, killed, stoned in Acts chapter 7. But in Acts chapter 12, the first apostle is martyred, and Peter is imprisoned again. But this time he escapes. And Acts chapter 12 could in many ways be left out of the narrative. It's not really necessary to understand so much how the story goes forward. We must ask ourselves, why is Luke putting this story here in Acts chapter 12? One of the reasons, perhaps, is is that Peter, the Apostle Peter, basically uh, leaves the story at the end of uh, Acts chapter 12. So that could be part of it. Um, But also, we do get to see some important realities for the early church. And it contains some lessons that we can learn about persecution, prayer, and pride. This is not one of those easy texts to to preach, but it does have a lot in it that we can learn here and there. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Acts chapter 12, uh, first 24 verses. And, uh, and then we're going to look at it. I'm going to run through it real quick. And there will be four things that we can learn from this story. This is the Word of God. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, 
Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued him from the hand of Herod, rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to him with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered them that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent his time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on the royal robe, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a man, a God, and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And the word of God increased and multiplied. This is God's word. Luke introduces this chapter simply by saying about that time. And that connects us to the end of Acts chapter 11. But the death of Herod at the end of this chapter, and I'm I'm bringing this up because time matches on in the book of Acts. The death of Herod at the end of this chapter really helps us work out when this is going on. Round about A.D. 44. Time is accelerating very, very fast. And we are now six or seven years further along from Acts 10 and 11, which is where the Gentiles are brought into the church. We are now 13 or 14 years after the establishment of the church at Pentecost. And Herod Agrippa I begins persecuting the church. He's king over a region of northern Palestine, which includes Judea and Samaria. And his reign exists under two Roman emperors, Claudius and Gaius, for about eight years. And he dies at the end of this chapter, and it is a gruesome death. He is the grandson of Herod the Great, who ordered the killing of all the boys in Matthew chapter 2, under the age of two in Bethlehem. Remember that story? You remember it in your nativity play? Actually, no, that's the bit that gets left out of the nativity story. 
Herod the Great coming and killing all the babies Jesus' age in Bethlehem. So this is now the grandson, and like his grandfather, he begins persecuting the followers of Jesus. Herod was an Edomite, which is from the line of Esau rather than from the line of Jacob. And so under the Romans, Edomite kings ruled over the Jewish people. So what did he do to make himself popular and well-liked? This is not a man who's going to be naturally well-liked by all the Jews in this area. He decides to kill Christians. And not just any Christians, he goes after the leaders. Herod takes advantage, like any politician seems to do. He sees an opportunity to make himself popular, and he takes it. He takes advantage of this growing divide between the Jews and the Christians, especially now that the Gentiles, all non-Jews, have been brought into the church. This divide is gaining size. He takes the apostle James and has him killed. James is the brother of John, and he's called one of the sons of thunder in the Gospels. There was the debate in uh, Mark chapter 10, as the disciples were debating who amongst them was the greatest. Well, that was James and his brother John. These men asked Jesus if they could have the best seat in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied in Mark 10, 39, he says to him, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. They didn't understand what that meant. But now we come to see what it means. What baptism of Jesus has James come to participate in? Quite simply, identification with his Lord in his death and newness of life. James, it says, is killed with the sword. This is in accordance with Deuteronomy chapter 13, where Moses gave the people of Israel a law for anyone that causes you to worship a false god, anyone who tells you to worship a false god, kill that man with a sword. James is killed with a sword, which means he is beheaded in accordance with Deuteronomy 13. What this is saying is James was killed because he worshipped Jesus Christ and according to Herod and many of the Jews this was because they believed Jesus Christ was a false god. They used the law which pointed to Jesus to kill an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus was right. Jesus was completely right in his prophecy about what would become of James. He identified with his Lord and Savior in his death. But Herod is doing this not because of any great love for Judaism. He doesn't care. He's not even doing this for Rome. Verse 3, it says, When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he arrested Peter also. Like so many people, he's simply in this for himself. 
He says, oh, this has made many, many people happy. Let me do something else. He wants people to like him. In his, in his mind, arresting Peter would be a spectacle for the people. Peter then gets arrested, probably a few days later, and because the timing is right around the festival of the unleavened bread, which is right after Passover, he puts Peter in prison. And his goal, his goal is quite simple. He wants to put the most well-known apostle, which is Peter, on trial. He wants to have a very public trial for all the people to watch. And then he wants to have him killed just like James. And because this is their equivalent of Easter, he puts him in jail, waits a few days, and then he plans to kill him. Herod uses a, a horrible tactic to try, to try and earn himself popularity, to try and strike fear into the hearts of Christians. He goes after their leaders. He goes after those at the top. So Peter now gets thrown into jail for the third time. If you say you've been in jail three times, and normal what our minds normally go to, well, that's probably someone that's done some pretty bad stuff. Peter is thrown in jail for the third time simply for being a Christian. Jesus had told Peter in John chapter 21 that one day he would also be martyred. Peter knew how he was going to die before it happened. Now, however, is not the time. Look at verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter is rescued through prayer. The people here love Peter. He is basically the head of the church at Jerusalem. He is the chief of the apostles. He is the leader of the apostles. And they pray for him. And this is important for us as we think about how our culture understands prayer. Have you heard the phrase, thoughts and prayers added together? Thoughts and prayers with you. A lot of atheists, and I have, a, I know a lot of atheist friends and a lot of non-Christian friends, and they say, thoughts and prayers, what a waste of time. America is currently going through a, a bit of a bad run with, uh, with hurricanes. I saw, a, I saw a meme on, on Facebook of a, an empty truck, and it says, an empty truck, and it says, here's all your thoughts and prayers for Hurricane Harvey. Meaning, give help, which is true, you should give help, but thoughts and prayers are worthless and they're not actually going to contribute to anything in this difficult situation. Positive thoughts? Maybe. It's not wrong to have positive thoughts and thoughts of empathy for people. But prayers? Is that really doing nothing? Is that really doing nothing to pray for people? It says here the people prayed earnestly. They prayed without ceasing. They were asking, they were seeking, they were knocking, they were continually asking God to release Peter. Is that doing nothing? To be honest, in a situation such as this, where you have 
Romans, a good amount of Romans. It says four squads of Romans. He's got his chain to two people. He's got people outside the door. He's got another door outside there. There is no way Christians could have just done some kind of jailbreak. There is no way diplomacy could work this thing out. Is prayer doing nothing? No. Prayer is calling upon the only person who can possibly help in this situation. Prayer is calling on the sovereign God of the universe to act. Psalm 50 verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. John Stott says of this circumstances, he says, Here then we have two communities, the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. The world wielding the sword and prison and justice and God of the church wielding prayer. Peter is sleeping, attached to these two soldiers. He is woken up by an angel. The Greek word for angel, angelos, simply means messenger. There is a possibility this could just be an ordinary man. Is this an actual angel or is this a person? I lean towards this is some sort of divine being. So the light shone into the, into the cell. Luke, as he's telling the story, is giving us glimpses of the supernatural. Luke intends us to believe that this was a miraculous occurrence. Whether it was done by a normal man or whether it was done by an angel, this is clearly the result of divine intervention. As a result of the will of God, moved in response to the prayers of his people. Peter gets out. He walks through the doors. He gets unlocked. He goes right out. He's not stopped. Miraculously, then, he makes his way to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, who is the cousin of Barnabas. And many believe that this lady, Mary, owned the upper room that was used for the Last Supper, and also used the room in Acts chapter 1 that they all prayed in before Pentecost. But we don't know that for sure. So Peter decides to head over to Mary's house, and it's midnight, but there's a group of people still praying, still asking, please God, let Peter out of prison. Please God, protect our leader here on earth. A servant girl called Rhoda hears Peter's voice, runs to Mary, and tells her and the others that Peter has arrived. Peter is there at the gate. And their response, I love, I love that response. It's just so brutally honest. It makes the people in the story not look good. <laughs> that doesn't make them look good. Their response is a statement of fact. It says, you are out of your mind. You're crazy. But Rhoda, the servant girl, clearly believes that it's Peter. And so the story changes. They say, it is, must be his angel. As part of Jewish uh, superstition, every culture seems to have its own myths and 
one such thing is that in Jewish culture, every person would have their own angel, and your angel could take on the form of you, and perhaps that was what's being spoken of here. Peter's angel is standing at the gate. It can't be Peter. Peter's in jail. Peter's angel is at the gate. They did not believe it was Peter. So poor Peter, he's been in jail, and he's standing at the gate at midnight in Jerusalem, knocking over and over and over, calling out, come on, let me in, let me in, it's me. One commentator says, it is ironical that the group who were praying fervently and persistently and earnestly for Peter's deliverance should regard as mad the person who informed them that their prayers had been answered. Peter comes in quickly. He takes this seriously. Peter comes in quickly. He explains that it is the Lord that has brought him out of prison. It is the Lord, let's remember, this is not just prison, this is certain death. Certain death. This is the night before. The very next day, Peter would have been beheaded. He instructs them to tell this to James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, who perhaps now at this time becomes the leader of the church at Jerusalem. James, of course, the brother of Jesus. How crazy is that, that you get your own brother to believe that you are God? James, we know, was martyred. He was thrown off the temple in Jerusalem and killed. He died because he believed his own brother was the Son of God. Peter then goes into hiding. And this is the end of Peter in Acts, apart from a brief appearance in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Council. Peter shows up, does a welfare call, I'm okay, and then he goes into hiding. And sadly, and the story doesn't make much of it, when this escape is uncovered, Herod looks for Peter, and when they can't find him, they put the soldiers who were guarding Peter in the jail to death. The Lord at the time was the same sentence that the prisoner was to face. If he escapes, then the guards who were looking after him who had messed up in some way received that same sentence. And then we have the last four verses, a demonstration of Herod's pride. And we have here, real briefly, Herod is angry with a group of people that are next to his kingdom, and they ask him for food. He agrees to give them food. Herod is after his own, his own popularity, and it's such an event, such as a games or a big public gathering, a rally. Herod stands up arrayed in silver, and he speaks to all these people. I will give you food. I will let you live. And the people yell out to Herod. He says, the voice of a God and not a man. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells the story in much the same way that Luke does here. 
And Herod, we are told, is struck down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Wow, what do we make of that? Josephus tells us that it took five days for Herod to die. This could be a burst appendix. This could be uh, some sort of stomach worms, something gross. This caused him to die. This was an earthly disease, but divinely judged. This was divine judgment upon him. God made sure that Herod could no longer act with the amount of pride that he did, and he put him to death. Many people try to explain this away, and they say it was appendicitis or something like that. Sure, it may well have been. But Luke says, God caused this to happen. Herod's end matches in many ways the end of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, who has his kingdom taken away from him because of pride. Same thing happening here, just more immediate. Herod's pride was so great that not only was he called a god by some of the people, he acted in such a way, he played God. He decided who would eat and would not eat. With the sentries, he decided who would live and would not live. He had such pride. And when people lifted his name up, he refused to correct them. He refused to say, no, 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 I'm just a man. There is one God, I am just a man. He refused to say that. He talked about how wonderful he was. He liked it. He reveled in it. So what do we take home from this? What do we take home from this? Firstly, and I've said this a few times, the absolutely resilient, staunch, strong nature of the church which is built on the gospel. The church is resilient in such a wonderful way. Look at verse 24. This is the contrast. This is what Luke is driving towards. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Act chapter 6, Act chapter 9, Act chapter 12 have these little verses. They're called progress reports. And it gives a progress on what's happening in the story. The word of God increased and multiplied. This is the contrast. This is the contrast. The church begins under persecution, but the word continues to go forward. Persecution cannot, cannot ever permanently stop the spread of the kingdom of God. It cannot bind the word of God. But Paul said this, Paul said so clearly in in 2 Timothy and in Philippians, he says, even if he is bound, the word is not bound. The church is not built on any person other than Jesus Christ. The church is built through the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did God need Peter? No. Did God need James? No. Does God need me and you? No. He just chooses to use us to varying degrees. It was the early church father, Tertullian, who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Here we see the truthfulness of this statement. The work of God continues on despite the death of James and the departure of Peter. And I'm almost amazed by it. I'm almost surprised by it at this point. We're like 13, 14 years into Acts. The people have still not worked this out. The church follows a savior who was killed. How do you think killing Christians is going to stop its spread? Seriously. Martyrdom has never stopped the kingdom advancing. It never has. Throughout church history, the pendulum swings back and forth between expansion and opposition, growth and shrinkage, advance and retreat. Stott says, although with the assurance that even the power of death and hell will never prevail against Christ's church, since it is built securely on the rock. The Roman Empire is no more. Attila the Hun's empire is no more. Christ's empire, however, will never end. And therefore we are able to be the people who say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Come at me. So this is the call to keep continue proclaiming the word and trusting God. And secondly, to pray. To pray. This text tells us to pray boldly and expect results. I've been convicted of this lately. Jesus told us to, to ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Persistently, earnestly, this church is simply modeling here in Acts chapter 12 what Jesus told them to do. Let's ask ourselves, a question. If God answered all of our prayers right now, what would happen? What would happen? Who would be saved? How many people would be baptized? How many of your stubborn, hard-hearted family members would come to Christ? What would our city look like if your prayers were answered? What would this church look like if your prayers were answered, maybe I'd disappear, I don't know. But but seriously, what would it look like? Howard Marshall says, when the church prays, the, court of, the cause of God will go forward. His enemies will come to naught, even if this does not exempt the church from suffering and martyrdom. It's a realistic, wonderful thing that we see here. Thirdly, we need to realize and accept that God's providence varies. I.e., what God gives to us is not the same for each and every person. Have you considered this here in Acts chapter 12? Peter escaped from prison. Peter lives many more years. James died. Two apostles, two very different faiths at the time, involved in the same act of persecution. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, verse 34 to 37, 
he talks about Gideon and Barak and Samson and David and Samuel and the prophets, and he says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. By faith some escaped the edge of the sword. But he goes on to say, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, and they were killed with the sword by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ does not mean ease, nor does it necessarily mean great difficulty. The providence of God is right according to His choice. It's not our place to know exactly why God does the things that He does. It's not our job to say, why did James die and Peter escape from prison? It is not that our job to do that. We are called to trust God in the moment, and whatever comes by is His will. And lastly, this story tells us to beware of pride. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sins, puts pride as one of the chief sins that we need to watch out for that is respectable in our culture and sometimes even in the church. You might look at the story of Herod being struck down by worms and going, man, where was this for Hitler? Where was this for um, Lenin? Where was this for for other leaders? I'm going to stop naming them right now. Um, Wouldn't it be great if every immensely prideful leader was struck down? doesn't always happen instantly like it does here. But it will in time. It will in time. This is the promise. Jesus Christ came once to save, then to judge. Pride might be a respectable sin for many of us, but it is when we put ourselves in God's place are we most prideful. And this is the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. Anything we put in the place of God is an idol that we worship in our in his place and when we do that we worship ourselves or others that are not the true God we demonstrate pride and perhaps one of the scariest verses in all of scripture is James chapter 4 verse 6 God opposes the proud we thought of that God opposes the proud The God of all the universe who created everything from nothing opposes you if you are proud. The opposite of pride is humility. Jesus uh, is the most humble man who has ever lived, the only man in whom there was no pride in his life, no sinful pride at all. Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah 66, it says, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. No one demonstrates that more than Jesus Christ. Herod personifies pride in the story. Jesus Christ personifies humility. And you might be reading this and seeing Herod. You won't like Herod. If this was a movie, Herod would be the bad guy. You'd be rooting against him. 
And you might be tempted to look at this persecution and say, Herod is the bad guy, and then think of yourself as, well, I'm on the good team, I'm a good guy. If we are to place ourselves in Acts chapter 12, left to ourselves, the person that we are most like is Herod. God opposes the proud. Jesus is the good guy. We are most like Herod. But as we saw in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus Christ humbled himself by coming to us, becoming a man, living that perfect life in obedience to God. It is humility that allows us to be obedient to God. He died upon a cross. He rose on the third day, demonstrating that God was satisfied with his sacrifice. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, and all who believe in him by faith can be forgiven of their pride. Pride, our pride, your pride, got Jesus crucified. It is not a respectable sin, but it is one in which there is forgiveness. This calls us to beware of pride, to repent of it, and to believe the gospel that forgives us of our pride and rebellion against God. I want us to finish with start beautiful summary, summarizes this far better than I ever could, summarizes what happens in Acts chapter 12. Hear these words. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. And at the end, he is himself struck down and dies. This chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. But it closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, to oppress the church and hinder the spread of the gospel, but they will not last Because in the end, their empire will be broken and their pride abased. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. 